You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. you're doing well. Um, I know that's not my normal entrance up here to the stage, and uh, some of you may be thinking, wow, CP is really taking a turn for the worse. I I don't know what's going on, but uh, about three weeks ago, I basically have lost use of my right arm. I can push down on it, but I I can't lift it up, even just getting it on the Lifting it high enough to get on the table is is a bit of a struggle. So I don't I don't know what's going on with my right arm, but uh, anyway, something is. But we're trying to get it figured out. But I, I told Jim a couple of weeks ago that uh, for the first time in my life, I actually feel handicapped. <laughs> so, but uh, anyway, so don't be too alarmed. I'm okay. All right, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, we would come to you now and and pray that you would quiet our hearts before you, that our minds would be attentive to what you would have to say through us or to us through your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work now of illumining the meaning of your word to our hearts and to our minds. We pray that Christ would be glorified. These things we ask in his name. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of James, right past the book of Hebrews, then you'll find the book of James, chapter 1. Last time I preached, a month and a half or so ago, we I gave the introduction to the book of James, some of the background material and kind of the overall theme of James, and so today we will continue our progression through this. If I preach three or four times a year, I guess we'll probably get through James, oh, in two or three decades or so. So, but, uh, verses two through four will be our focus this morning. Two through four. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. May God bless the reading of his word. Title of this sermon this morning is the truth about trials, the truth about trials. And I want us to notice a few different things about trials. Number one, if you're taking notes, we're going to notice the inevitability of trials. We're going to talk about the meaning of trials, the purpose of trials, our response to trials, and then the fruit of trials. So we got a lot of ground to cover here. First, the inevitability of trials. Notice that James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not if, but when. Trials are inevitable. Life is marked by trials. It is marked by times of tears, times of pain. And if I were to ask for a show of hands this morning, how many of you, and I'm not, but how many of you right now are going through a trial of some kind, I would imagine that probably most of our hands would go up, right? Trials are inevitable. And we get stuck in the rut so often when we see people pass them by and somebody says, oh, how you doing? We say, fine. You know, it's just kind of, and I do it too. People ask, well, how you doing? Just doing fine. Well, maybe I'm not really doing fine. You know, maybe, maybe we're going through a trial and life is hard. But that's just kind of our knee-jerk reaction. But trials are inevitable. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 34, He says, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each day. So every day we face some kind of trouble. Varying degrees, yes, but every day has enough trouble of its own. John 16, 33, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, not may, will have trouble. Trouble. 
the namesake of the oldest book in the Bible, Job. Job says in the book of Job, of course, chapter 5, verse 7, he says, For man is born of trouble as the sparks fly upward. And so the picture that Job draws for us is that just as a campfire, when you build a campfire of wood, of course, and the sparks naturally fly upward, that is what life is. Our fallen state, the fallen state in which we live, naturally produces trouble. Ever since Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, whatever that fruit was, when they ate of that fruit and sin entered the world, sickness, disease, natural disasters, the reason people have trouble, the reason we have trials, it's a natural product of living in a fallen world. The reason people get sick, the reason that there are natural disasters, uh, the reason uh, kids get cancer, any any bad things that happen, the, the reason that, that some people prefer cats over dogs, it's because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. And that fallen state just naturally produces trouble. Job chapter 14, verse 1. Job says, man who is born of woman, pretty much all of us, right? Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of trouble. You're not going to see that verse on the front of a Hallmark card anytime soon. <laughs> but it is truth. First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about those who are married. He says, if you are married, you will have trouble. Now, marriage is a good thing, but being married, it does produce trouble. My wife says, and I'll quote her, anytime you put two sinners under the same roof, inevitably you're going to have some friction. You're going to have trouble. It's just part of living in a fallen world. Paul was troubled. The scripture reading this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, those few verses that Jim read for us, long list of the trouble that he went through. Jesus was troubled in John chapter 11 when he, when Lazarus died, he wept. Jesus wept over that. Jesus sweated drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. And dear friends, if the incarnate Son of God, if the second person of the triune God had trouble, so will we. It is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus had trouble, we certainly will too. Trials are inevitable. And also notice that James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Trials are very varied. The emphasis here is not so much on the number of the trials, but on the, the widespread nature of trials. They come in a lot of different shapes and sizes, a lot of different flavors of trials. They're various. We have trials in our health, do we not? We have health trials. We have financial trials. We have trials of persecution, whether hard persecution like many of our brothers and sisters in Christ face around the world in many countries today, Iran and Syria and North Korea, hard persecution. We don't face that kind of persecution here, but we should have some soft persecution, whether it comes at work or from our friends, family members. That is a trial. Trials of abandonment, trials of alienation, alienation of affection, trials of being misunderstood. Have you ever spoken the truth to someone, especially a close friend or especially a family member, spoken the truth to them and you do so out of genuine care and genuine concern for them and they misunderstand you and it makes them angry and it causes an alienation there? That's a trial. And it hurts. And Paul and uh, excuse me, James makes no distinction between external trials like trials in our health, finances, persecution and internal trials. He doesn't make a distinction between that because what usually happens, an external trial becomes what? An internal trial. When we get a bad report from the doctor, yes, that affects our body or when uh, finances are, are difficult. These are external things, but they become what? Internal. And they weigh on our hearts, they weigh on our minds. No distinction. Many, many different kinds of trials. They are inevitable. Number two, the meaning of trials. Let's look at the meaning of trials. Some people have the misguided notion that bad things should only happen to the ungodly. Uh, Asaph, in Psalm chapter 73, Jim's uh, writing a book on that. Asaph made the observation about how the wicked prosper, and it didn't seem right to him. Uh, why, do, why do the wicked prosper? The prophet Jeremiah had the same question. Why do the wicked 
wicked prosper. We have this notion that bad things should only happen to bad people. In the age-old question, well, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? That's a question that so many people have, but I think most of us in this church know that that's the wrong question. Because there is no such a thing as a good person. God does not allow bad things to happen to good people. Why? Because there are no good people. We are all sinners. We have all broken the laws of God. That does not mean that every person is as bad as he possibly could be. But there is only one who is good, as Jesus said in Mark chapter 10. There is only one who is good, and that is God. And so all of the rest of us are just different shades of bad. So the question that so many people ask, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, is the wrong question. It does not understand. It misunderstands biblical theology and human depravity. Some people think that adversity means that God is displeased with us. There's a whole swath of Christianity that has that view. If something bad happens to you, then that means that God is displeased with you. You've done something to make him mad and he's punishing you. Not necessarily. In fact, quite often, the opposite is true. Job, right? Job, he was upright. He was blameless. He feared God and he shunned evil. And yet God allowed Satan to come and to strike from Job everything that he had. His possessions were destroyed. His family was dead. And his own health deteriorated, covered with open sores. Job had done nothing to deserve these things. In fact, God says that in the first chapter of Job. So sometimes trials come because, in fact, we are right with God. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, the first Christian martyr, he was stoned. And he right before he was stoned, he saw the heavens open. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, a very tender scene. It was like Jesus stood up, ready to receive him. And then Stephen was stoned. He was stoned right after, by the way, he had preached a sermon. So just because something, quote unquote, bad happens to us, doesn't mean necessarily that God is displeased. Oftentimes, the opposite is the reality. The opposite is reality. Look at the look at the apostles. All of them were martyred for their faith. The apostle Paul was beheaded. Peter, we think, was crucified upside down. And yet we've got a whole swath of Christianity, this prosperity gospel, talking, telling us how we should have our best life now. Joel Osteen writes in his book, Your Best Life Now. Think about the title of that book. Your best life now. We are not having our best life now. Our best life is not this side of heaven. Our best life is on the other side of heaven. The only people for whom that title would be true are people who are lost and who die lost. And if you die in your sins, yes, you are having your best life now. So even the title is unbiblical. But he talks about in his book how he and his wife, Victoria, were trying to find a good parking spot at the mall. And all the good parking spots were taken, but just as they came down the aisle of cars, the car in the very front spot backed out, pulled away just in time for Joel and Victoria to go in and get that good parking spot right up front. And he says, friends, that's the favor of God. That is not the favor of God. That is, that is a false gospel. What is it in the lives of the apostles that makes people think God wants us to have our best life now. What is it in the lives of the apostle that makes people think that we are entitled to good parking spots? Was it that Paul was beheaded? Was it that Peter was crucified upside down? Was it that Stephen was stoned? What is it that people read in the New Testament that make them think that we are entitled to these nice little comforts of life? It's a false gospel. And the reason they believe these things and the reason they teach these things is because they love themselves more than they love God. In fact, I will go so far as to say, confidently say, not only do they love themselves more than they love God, they love themselves and they hate God. Joel Osteen hates God. He hates God. He's got the same Bible you and I've got. He can read it just like we can. He does not like the God of the Bible. He hates the God of the Bible. And so he creates a false God. A false God. 
So just because trials happen to you doesn't mean that God is displeased with you. Oftentimes, it means just the opposite. Those people who have trusted a painless gospel have trusted a false gospel. Salvation is free, yes. Salvation is free. Discipleship is not. Jesus said to count the cost, right? We believe in the sovereignty of God, rightly so. We teach the sovereignty of God, but Jesus also said count the cost. Why? Why did he say that? Was he just whistling Dixie? No, he said it for a reason. Because there will be a cost. Salvation is free. The gift is free. Discipleship, following Christ, is anything but free. There will be a cost. Oftentimes, trials can be because of our faith. John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus says, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Again, an argument from the greater to the lesser. If they persecuted me, the Son of God, they will certainly persecute you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, All of those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some may be persecuted. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And there is not an exception clause there for those of us who live in the United States. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I want to read to you a poem by a lady named Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India in the uh, first half of the 20th century, around the 1930s. And she wrote this poem entitled, No Scar. I want to read this to you. Amy Carmichael, she says, Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent. By ravening beasts that compass me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that leadeth me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far? Who has no wound? Who has no scar? If you have no scars, you are not following the Savior. These are, notice these are trials. These are not temptations. The word here in the Greek, trials, periosmos. And that is, it means trial. It does not mean temptation. And if you have the King James Version, you might notice that the King James reads, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter divers temptations. D-I-V-E-R-S. Divers temptations. I'm not sure exactly what kind of temptations divers face, but that's what the King James says. It's rather archaic language, but the King James also gets this wrong. They don't... Uh, Bad job by, by the translators. So apologies to the KJV only folks, but the King James is wrong in some places, and this is one of them. The word here does not denote anything inherently evil in and of itself. It's not talking about a temptation. It's talking about a trial, a test. The picture is, is that this is something that breaks or shatters tranquility. Think of a pond, a small pond on a Still day, there's not a whisper of wind and the surface of the pond is just like glass and you throw a rock into it and what? It shatters that tranquility. This is, this is what trials do. They shatter tranquility. This is not a temptation in and of itself. It is not a temptation. It is no subjective temptation. This word trials denotes an objective difficulty. Now let's look at the purpose of trials. The purpose of trials. One of the purposes of trials is that they bring humility to us. They engender humility. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. This is when Paul was talking about his trip to heaven. He said he was caught up to the third heaven. And the first heaven is this, is the atmosphere that we breathe. The second heaven is space. Third heaven, 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 the, the abode of God. And Paul says that he was caught up to the third heaven. And he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, 
He says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Reminds you kind of of Job. God allowed Satan to go and to strike from Job everything he had. God allowed Satan to come or one of his messengers to come. Paul says it was a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to humble me, to keep me from exalting myself. And Paul said, I prayed three times that it would depart from me. And Jesus said, no, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Trials often bring humility. They bring humility. Why? Because we all need humility. Dear friends, I'm going to say something. None of us is without pride. None of us is without pride. You have pride. I have pride. And as long as we live in a fallen world and fallen flesh, there is nothing that we do with 100% pure motives. Nothing we do, we do with 100% pure motives. When we help a little old lady across the street, we want to help her, yes, but we even that, we're not doing that with 100% pure motives. And to think that we can is to underestimate total depravity, underestimate how fallen we really are. So what do we have to do? We have to try to crucify that pride in ourselves. Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the body. And I'll say you, to you, and I, this is not some false sense of humility at all, but I know because I know theology, know what the Bible teaches about how fallen and depraved we really are. Yes, we're new creatures in Christ. Yes, old things have passed away. New things have come. But all of us still has a Romans chapter 7. All of us still deal with, with sin, indwelling sin. We have to put it to death, but we can never completely put it to death this side of heaven. And none of us does anything with 100% pure motives. And I am not even up here preaching to you with 100% pure motives. I know that theologically. We try to crucify our flesh. We try to put to death pride. But it's always there. And dear friends, if the Apostle Paul had pride, how much more so than you and I? This is the man who wrote half the New Testament. And he struggled with pride. And so what did God do? God gave him a thorn in the flesh to humble him. And I want you to notice something. It worked. It worked. Why do we know it worked? Because of what he said. Paul said this thorn was given to him to humble himself. Paul could have said this. He could have written to the Corinthians. He said, he could have said, I have this thorn in the flesh because my preaching has been so effective. I'm such a godly man and my preaching has been so effective and my sermons are so great and I've started so many churches that Satan just was bothered by everything I was doing and so he came to try to put a stop to it. He could have said that. But he didn't. He said, there was given me a thorn in the flesh to humble me. He didn't have to write that, but he did. The thorn worked. The thorn brought him humility. Paul struggled with pride. You and I will too. And sometimes trials will go an awful long way in killing that pride. Putting to death the deeds of the body. Also, trials are for the purpose of confirmation. Not confirmation. Conformation. Conformation. When we are conformed into the image of Christ... Romans chapter 8, 28, Paul writes this, one of the most beloved verses in all the New Testament. Paul writes, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, and foreknew, as Dave preached a few months ago, is not God looking down through the corridors of time. Those he foreknew, God set his affections on his elect from eternity past. That's what foreknowledge means. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. To be conformed to the image of his son. Trials are for our conformation. They conform us into the image of Christ. Now notice this. Notice what Romans 8.28 does not say. Paul does not say God causes all things to work together for good. Paul does not say that all things are good. A lot of people think that 
that's in there somewhere, that all things are good. All things are not good. Paul doesn't say, say that all things are good. He says all God works all things together for the good. All things are not good. It's not good when someone gets multiple sclerosis or muscular dystrophy. That's not a good thing. It's not good when someone is injured in a car accident. It's not good when a child gets cancer. We see these commercials on TV for St. Jude and they're heartbreaking. It's not good. All things are not good. But God works all things together for the good. He works all things together for the good. To conform us into the image of Christ. David in Psalm chapter 119 verse 71. He said this. It is good that I was afflicted. That I might learn your statutes. It's good that I was afflicted. That I might learn your statutes. Now, did David mean that these afflictions just gave him some time so he could sit at home and go through some memory cards and scripture verses and memorize some scripture? Possibly. Trials can give us time away. God does use trials oftentimes to break us away from our normal schedule and to kind of cool our jets and, and, and get us away from that. And yes, we can spend that time studying scripture and we should. But it's not just that. It's not just having time to memorize things. It's also an experiential thing. It was good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Trials conform us into the image of Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this, the great evangelist preacher Charles Spurgeon, he said this, quote, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. Trials conform us into the image of Jesus. Also, trials are tests. Trials are tests. Look at verse 3. James says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing of your faith produces endurance. And this is something that we are to know. We are to know these things, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. The very word know, uh, the very word trial denotes a test. This this test uh, from the Greek word dokimazo, uh, uh, dokimazo means to test. And when you tease this out a little bit, the word dokimazo actually refers to uncovering a hidden quality, uncovering the genuineness of something, testing something. And dear friends, there is nothing quite like trials that will reveal the genuineness of our faith. Oh, it's easy to claim to be a Christian when everything's going great, when you've got a good parking spot at the mall. That's easy. Not so easy when trials come. Not so easy when you get the bad report from the doctor. Not so easy when you lose your job. Not so easy when, you ch when your child dies. Those are hard. Those are trials. And they test the genuineness of our faith. They reveal who we really are. Nothing like a trial to break away that superficial facade. A true Christian will be driven to his knees in trials. Because trials are tests. And tests are something that these Jewish believers to whom James was writing would be would have been very familiar. Israel was tested in the Old Testament. Remember? Wandering around in the wilderness. They failed that test. Abraham was tested. Genesis chapter 22. Tested hard. God told him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And Abraham was willing to do it. Put him on the altar, bound him, and had the dagger raised. And then right at the last second, God stayed his hand. Abraham passed the test. So testing is something with which these Jewish Christians were very, very familiar. And the files of trials, dear ones, will burn up false professions of faith. These tests will burn up false professions of faith. Not to pick on Joel Osteen, but to pick on Joel Osteen. The pastor 
of the largest quote-unquote church in the United States of America, Lakewood Church, and I say quote-unquote because that group of people does not fit the biblical definition of a church. Lakewood is not a church. Joel Osteen is not a pastor, but to use the terms. is pastor, quote-unquote, of the largest church in the United States of America. If and when, or when and if, however you want to view it, real persecution of Christianity does come to this country, when the kind of persecution that our brothers and sisters in Iran are experiencing in Syria, in Libya, in North Korea, when that kind of persecution comes to this country, Lakewood Church will go from the biggest church in the United States of America to a ghost town. You will be able to hear a pin drop on Sunday morning at Lakewood because trials burn up false professions of faith. They reveal who we really are on the inside. John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says, If you continue in my word, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John writes, They went out from us because they were not, what? Of us. They left us. Why? Because they were not really of us. They were false professors. They only claim to be Christians. And people who only claim to be Christians won't stick it out. When the trials of life come, they'll melt away. This is what Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the soils. Remember parable of the soils? The seed is the word of God and the seed is, is the same seed is thrown in the same way and it falls on four different kinds of soils. The hard soil, the thorny soil, the rocky soil, and the good soil. This is the rocky soil. They went out from us because they were not really of us. Same seed thrown in the same way. Rocky soil springs up for a little while, but then what happens? The sun comes out and it scorches them. The trials of life and it scorches them and those initial little shoots wither away. They die because they were not truly believers. The seed did not fall on the fertile soil. On the good soil, it sprouts and it remains. That fruit remains. It perseveres. Oftentimes we refer to the perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. Do I believe in that? Yes, I do. But I don't really like to call it perseverance of the saints because that kind of puts the emphasis on us. The perseverance of the Savior. The perseverance of the Savior. Those whom God saves, He keeps. He keeps through the trials. Also, our response to trials. James says, consider it all joy. Consider it all joy. This does not mean we enjoy trials. Trials are, by definition, not fun. We don't enjoy them. That's why they're called trials. So James isn't here saying enjoy your trials. He says, consider it all joy. And I'm going to give the King James a little kudos here because the King James has a better sense of it, it in, at least in this part. It says, count it all joy. And that's really the better sense of the word. This, this word is an accounting term. It literally means, it's, it's almost like banking. Basically what James is saying here is he's saying, brethren, count it as joy. You can take it to the bank because when you persevere through trials, there will be joy on the other end. And you can count it as certain. You can take it to the bank. Count it as joy. Notice James did not say feel it as joy. Feel it as joy. We don't base our theology off of our feelings and our emotions. And we don't base our salvation off of our feelings and our emotions. Why? Because feelings and emotions, they come and go, right? They ebb and wane. And if you're of the fairer gender, they do like this. <laughs> so we don't base our salvation, we don't base our relationship on God, on feelings and emotions. And we cannot look at trials through the lens of feelings and emotions. James is not saying enjoy them. We don't enjoy them. They're hard. They're trials. They're not fun, but count it joy, count it joy, because when God preserves you through the trial, 
there will be joy on the other end. John the Baptist is a classic, I think, example of this. John, this is John the Baptist. This is the John the Baptist who, before he was even born, leaped in his mother's womb at the at the the joy of the coming Messiah. This he was the one who was the voice crying in the wilderness and made straight the way of the Messiah, made straight the way of the Lord. Baptized Jesus. And sometime after that, he found himself in prison. And Jesus' earthly ministry wasn't turning out the way he thought that it would, the way John the Baptist thought it would. And so from his prison cell, he sent his disciples to Jesus with a question. Are you the Messiah? Are, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? He was in the midst of a trial and it got to him briefly. And I love Jesus' response. He didn't lambast him. He didn't say, you go back to that knucklehead and you tell him. Jesus said, no man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was in the midst of a severe trial. And briefly, temporarily, he wavered. But he persevered and God preserved him through it. Did it end well this side of heaven? No, he was beheaded. So how could he count it all joy? Because now he is experiencing his joy. He is experiencing it. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses eight through ten. I love what Paul says here. Paul says in Second Corinthians four, eight through ten, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not despairing. Persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Struck down, but we're not destroyed. Paul says we're perplexed. It, it, it's confusing. All these things were happening. It was, at times he felt like he would despair even of life. But he wasn't crushed. He wasn't cast down. He, he, he preserved through the trials. He was perplexed, but he did not despair. Have you ever heard somebody, you ever come to somebody and say, well, how are you doing? Have you ever heard somebody respond this way? Oh, I'm too blessed to be stressed. You ever heard that? I'm too blessed to be stressed. What a stupid thing to say. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> too blessed to be stressed, are you? You better than the Apostle Paul? You better than Christ? Trials are hard. So don't despair, dear friends, when the trials come and they're hard. Don't despair if you struggle with them. We all struggle with them. But God's grace is sufficient. His strength is made perfect in our weaknesses. And notice James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Knowing. This is something we need to know. This is How do we know it? How do we know these things? We know these things by studying this book. This is how we know it. By studying the Word of God. This is not some passive knowing. And this is not a knowing that comes just by showing up to church once in a while. This is not a, you don't, you don't get the truth of this book inside of you by osmosis. You can't just lay the Bible on your nightstand and think you're going to somehow glean the truth. Study it. Know it. Study it. We are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Study God's Word. That is how the knowing comes. If you have never done a study of the attributes of God, I would encourage you to do that. If you've never gone through and studied the attributes of God, please do yourself a favor and do that. Uh, A.W. Pink has a good little book on the attributes of God. If you want something more expansive, Stephen Charnock is really thick, seven, eight hundred pages. But A.W. Pink is a really good book on the attributes of God, digestible. If you've never studied the attributes of God, do that. Do yourself a favor. Study the attributes of God. Study His decree. And when you study His decree, you know that all things are decreed by God. Nothing happens by accident. Everything has been decreed by God from eternity past. This is what Romans 8.28 is talking about. This is what Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. He speaks of God's manifold wisdom being made known in accordance with the eternal purpose, the eternal decree, which He, God, carried out in Christ Jesus. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, David says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. 
Study God's attributes, the decree of God. Dear friends, God is not everything that happens has been decreed from eternity past. That does not mean that God is the author of bad things. We've already talked about how not everything that happens is good. Most of what happens on this earth is bad. It's not good. Is God the author of that? No, he's not. Has he decreed it? Yes. What's the difference? It's hard for us to understand. It's hard for our finite, finite minds to understand. God is not the author of anything bad. He's not the author of evil. That is anathema. But he has decreed all these things. In Romans 8, 28, he works all these things out together for the good. Not that they are all good. He works them out together for the good, for his eternal purposes. He has decreed all things. It's been said that there is not a single renegade molecule anywhere in the universe. God has decreed all things. He is in control. He is sovereign. Study these things. Study God's omnipresence, that he is everywhere. Study God's omniscience, that he knows all things. Study God's omnipotence, that he has all power. Study the attributes of God. Study his love. Study his patience, his faithfulness. And it is unwise for us to emphasize any of God's attributes over another one of his attributes. It is unwise to emphasize the love of God over the wrath of God. It's unwise to emphasize the wrath of God over the love of God. In fact, in fact, each of God's attributes, stay with me here, each of God's attributes fully exegetes all of his other attributes. Does that make sense? You cannot understand the love of God without understanding the wrath of God. You cannot understand the wrath of God without understanding the mercy of God. You cannot understand the mercy of God without understanding the wrath of God. You cannot understand his love without understanding his power. You cannot understand his omnipresence without understanding his omniscience. All of his attributes fully exegete all of the other attributes. And so it's it's unwise to to emphasize one over the other. Study them all. First Peter, chapter five. Verses six through seven. First Peter five, six through seven. You might want to jot this reference down. Remember, sometimes, sometimes. Now, most people have an inordinate like the Joel Osteen, Mr. Happy Pants kind of preacher. They have this inordinate emphasis on the lovey dovey side of God and they never talk about the wrath of God. But it's unwise to never talk about the love of God, the, the patience of God. The mercy of God, the kindness of God. First Peter five, six through seven. Peter says this, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. He cares for you. Think about that. This is the one who spoke the universe into existence. I've always had a little bit of interest in, in astronomy. If you were to take our sun, did you know you could fit over a million Earths inside the sun? Over a million. If you were to take the sun and, and boil it down to the size of a penny, put it on the table, the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, the, the closest star to that penny, our sun, would be 350 miles away on the other side of Boise. That's the closest star. There's a hundred billion stars just in our galaxy. Just in our galaxy. How many galaxies are there? Nobody knows. Some say 10 trillion. Nobody knows. And the one who spoke all of that into existence cares for you. He cares for you. Do you know how this literally reads in the Greek? In the Greek, it literally says it matters to him about you. That's what it literally says in the Greek. It matters to him about you. Selah. Think of that. Dear friends, you will never go through a trial by yourself because it matters to God about you. It matters to him. Let's look at the fruit of trials. The fruit of trials. James says, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This word endurance, this word endurance has the idea of 
being underneath hupomeno, underneath and remaining. Hupa under meno remain. God does not bring us out of the trials. More often than not, He does not bring them out of us, out out of bring us out of the trials. Rather, He preserves us so that we can remain underneath them and we can persevere through them. Let endurance, this perseverance, this endurance have its perfect result. Perfect result. Uh, James is not talking about sinless perfection here. There's some people that teach, if you're a Christian, you'll never sin again. Someone who would teach that does not understand human depravity, does not understand the gospel. Salvation is not perfection. None of us is perfect. Salvation is not perfection, it's direction. Not sinless perfection. But God in Christ has equipped us with everything we need to face trials and to endure trials. Lacking in nothing. So you'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All Scripture is inspired by God and is is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Perfect, complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Dear friend, if you are a Christian, if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, you've been made regenerate in Christ, you have the Bible, you have God's sufficient word, you are indwelt by His Spirit, we have the fellowship of the saints, we have everything that we need to not only endure through the trials, but to live our lives in such a way that glorifies God. And that, dear friends, is the ultimate purpose of trials. The ultimate purpose of trials in our lives. Yes, to conform us to the image of Christ, but ultimately to glorify God. First Peter 1, 6-7. Peter says this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise in glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our lives are to glorify Christ. And dear friends, God is far more glorified in the life of someone who goes through a trial, a hard trial. And yes, it's hard. Yes, it can be discouraging. Yes, we can be perplexed. But through the trial, we remain faithful to Christ. We seek to glorify Him. We praise Him. We speak well of Him. We carry our lives in such a way that glorifies God. And God is far more glorified in that than you telling somebody that God gave you a good parking spot at the mall. Our trials conform us to the image of Christ, but ultimately they glorify God. Close with this. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 14 through 16. Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. And God responds to this statement from Zion, from Jerusalem, from Israel. The Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Here's God's response. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? No good mother would forget her son or daughter, right? And so you automatically think, no. But this is what God says. Even these may forget. Even these, even on occasion, a mother will forget her own children. Even these may forget. But I will not forget you. I will not forget you. Behold, behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. It matters to him about you. Trials are decreed by God. They give us humility. They conform us to the image of Christ. They are tests of our faith. Is our faith genuine? They test our faith. They glorify God and they result in the crown of life. Which is what James says in verse 12. James says, kind of concludes this section. He says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trials for once he has been approved he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. 
the crown of life. Literally in the Greek, the crown that is life. What is our, what is the crown? Do we, when we go to heaven, do we get a crown, literal crown on our head that says life on it? No, the crown of life, the crown that is life. Eternal life with the King of Kings. He, Jesus, is our reward. He is the glory and the joy of heaven. So yes, dear friends, trials will come. Persevere. Glorify God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, how we look forward to the day when we can leave this vapor of a life behind and leave all of its trials behind the difficult times. And Lord, we give You praise for preserving us through them. Not that You take them away, but You do preserve us through them. And so, Lord, may we be indeed conformed to the image of Your Son. May we study Your Word and, and know You and rest in Your attributes. Help us to endure these trials when they come. Glorify You through them. And Lord, how we look forward to the day when we will have our reward in heaven. Reward that You have secured for us. You have made possible for us. We would not have it but for You. And the reward is eternal life with You. With our King of kings and Lord of lords. Eternal life. We give You praise. These things we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.